Luke 23, if you remember, Pilate had made the decision after speaking with the Lord. He said, in him I find no fault at all. He came out to the Jews again, which is a verdict in a Roman court. He has now pronounced his verdict. He finds no fault in him at all. It tells us in chapter 23, verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, notice, saying, continually saying, he stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all of Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the same time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus is silent. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before they were at enmity between themselves. So it's interesting to take note of, for all of us, the silence of Jesus in this situation. I mean, you think of how far, as it were, measuring in our minds, he had come from eternity to earth to seek and save those that were lost. You think of the transition into human form so he could sit at the table with tax gatherers and sinners and harlots. You think of how it says the common people heard him gladly, yet in this scene when he stands before Herod, he's silent. He's silent. And you think of the people he had spent time with and broke bread with and talked to. Now he stands silent before him. Now he's there as a criminal. It says that when Pilate says, when he heard of his, of his jurisdiction, verse 7, he sent him. That phrase sent there is literally sent up. And it's a legal term. It means he sent him up to trial under Herod, which is, by the way, just politicking because he had already passed his jurisdiction. And he was the procurator of this area, Pontius Pilate. But he's playing politics. He wants Jesus off his hands. So he sends him up to him to let him judge Jesus because he found out Jesus was under his jurisdiction. Now, in this culture under Roman law, you could be tried in three places. You could be tried in the place of your birth. Jesus could have been tried in Bethlehem. You could be tried in the place of your residence. So he could have been tried in Capernaum, or you could be tried in the place of your crime. And uh, so they said he's caused dissension and disrupted, you know, the government from Galilee all the way down here to Jerusalem. So Herod then hands him over to the jurisdiction of Herod. Now, this is Herod Antipas. Uh, we want to look at him because Jesus refuses to talk to him. We want to make sure we're never in a place where he refuses to talk to us. Um, he is half Idumean. His father was Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great had ten wives, so he murdered a bunch of them uh, and some of his sons. But uh, there were a number of Herods under Herod the Great. This one's Herod Antipas, and we hear more of him than any Herod in the New Testament. Um, he is part Edomite from his father's side who claimed lineage to Esau and then, of course, to Abraham. So they considered themselves Jews. 
And his mother is a Samaritan, Malthrace. So he's half Edomite, half Samaritan, but considers himself a Sadducee. So he comes up to the feast. And because he was loaded, Mark calls him King Herod. The, the Sadducees, you know, everybody's in it for the, the money, you know. Uh, the golden rule, whoever has the gold rules. Uh, they, they evidently received him into the Sadducean part of uh, the aristocracy there in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting to read here the first time that we hear Jesus and he does address him is back in chapter um, six. Um, I'm sorry. He's back in chapter 14, where it says that, 13, it says that the, the same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, to Jesus, get thee out and depart from hence, for Herod, that's our Herod Antipas, will kill thee. So they're not, they're not concerned about Jesus, but they know if they can get him out of Galilee, into Judea that he's under their jurisdiction then and the jurisdiction of Pilate. So they say you should get out of this area because Herod Antipas was a tetrarch. It means ruler of a fourth part. His father, Herod the Great, had ruled over the entire area. And when he died, he, he left regions to his sons. And at this point, Herod Antipas has re received part of Archelaus, Herod Archelaus' region, and it is uh, Galilee and Pyrea, all the way down on the other side of Jordan, down to where the fortress Marcaris is on the northern end of the, the Dead Sea. So he is called a king. He is no doubt wealthy. And here they say to Jesus, get out of his area. He's going to kill you. No doubt they want him to come into their area so they can deal with him. And he said unto them in verse 32 in chapter 13, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He, sa he says, you go tell that fox who thinks he's going to kill me. I'm not under his jurisdiction. I'm going to do miracles today. I'm going to do miracles tomorrow. Probably not speaking of 24-hour days. And the third day, I'm going to be perfected. And evidently says that's going to be in Jerusalem. And it speaks of the fact that he's going to be trium triumphant in what he's come forth to do. It's not going to be a tragedy. It's going to be a triumph, the crucifixion and resurrection. So he says, you go tell him, there's no, there's no threat. Go tell that fox. That, uh, interesting, it's, it's feminine. Go tell that vixen. Uh, the female was known for the hunting and so forth. Um, as we follow Jesus through the Gospels, there is never a place. Though he rebuked many, and he could rebuke people strongly, but he never took an individual and gave him a negative title except this one man. He calls him a fox. We in our culture say sly as a fox. You know, the fox was known for its subtlety, its cunning, its speed. It chose cunning over power, as speed, uh, you know, over, you know, courage and so forth. He calls him a fox, which is kind of demeaning, obviously. And uh, he knows this man's propensity to live off the lives of others. That's what a fox would do. He knew his character. And he gives him this title. Maybe that's why he's not speaking to him. He says, this man is a fox. He doesn't say, go tell that lion. That would be something completely different. 
You know, he might have said that about Caesar, but he says, go tell that fox. They're diminutive, they're sneaky, they're not threatening. They, they count on their cunning to get things done. And he says, you go tell that fox. Now he calls him a fox here uh, because of his, his nature. Uh, we are told in Mark chapter 6, and that's where we have the greatest amount of information. Let me read this to you. And King Herod heard of him, of Jesus, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And others said that it is Elijah, and others said, no, it is a prophet or one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I have beheaded. He's risen from the dead. So evidently when Herod has his dreams at night, John the Baptist's head sitting on the platter is talking to him. And now he's hearing of this miraculous ministry of Jesus. Word had spread. It tells us right before this that the Lord sent out the 12 to different regions and gave them authority. But we're also told in Luke's gospel that there were women who traveled with Jesus that ministered to him of their substance and so forth. And it says one of them was Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the steward of Herod. So Herod's right-hand man, Chusa, has a wife named Joanna who ends up at the crucifixion as well. And Joanna must have been getting word back to her hubby you should see what he's doing. You should see the blind receiving their sight. You should see the things that are happening. You should, and she's a disciple. She's following him. So Herod is hearing many things about him from different sources. And he's thinking, and it's strange for a Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. This is John the Baptist risen from the dead. I know what's going on here. Now that's parenthetic. And it tells us why. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake. Notice his brother Philip's wife, who he had married. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him. So it was the vixen. But she could not, because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come that Herod, on his birthday, he's going to have a big birthday bash, and like wealthy people, you invite all your friends, you have an open bar, and everybody gets plastered and sings happy birthday. So when a convenient day was come, it was Herod's birthday, he made a supper to his lords and captains and the chief of the estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias, Josephus tells us her name was Salome. We don't have it in the scripture. We have it in history. When she came and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it to thee. And he swear unto her, Whatsoever you ask, I will give it to thee to the half of my kingdom, which I'm sure the Romans would have been happy to hear he gave half his kingdom away to a dancing girl, because they oversaw the area. And, and she went forth and said to her mother, What shall I ask? He said, you know, and she said, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. Thanks, Mom. And she came in straightway with haste to the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by, right now the idea is, on a charger, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. And notice, the king was exceeding sorry. If he was a real king, he'd have taken back his word. The king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake, for his pride, and for the sake of those which, which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent the executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a charger, a platter, and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother, 
Happy Mother's Day, Mom. And when his disciples heard it, they came, they took up the corpse and so forth. So this fox, Herod Antipas, this is his nature. He had been educated in Rome with Herod Philip II, his half-brother, brother, same father, different mom, and our class, a brother, same father, different mom. And he comes back to this area here to receive part of the territory to see what his position is going to be. When he goes back to Rome to spend some time there, he, he gets into an affair with his brother Philip's wife, who is also his brother Philip's niece, and also his niece. He gets involved in an affair with her. Her name is Herodias, and he convinces her to leave, that fox convinced her to leave his brother. Now, in Roman law, the wife was allowed to divorce the husband. In Jewish law, only the husband could divorce the wife. The Romans recognized either. So she agrees, I'll leave with you if you get rid of your present wife. So he was married to the princess of King Aretas of the area of Petra, Pyrea, and uh, the southern part there. So he divorces her to take his brother's wife, who is his niece. So he's in adultery. He's in adulterous incest at the same time. And John the Baptist shoots straight with him. And Herodias evidently is there to hear. And John the Baptist calls him, you're living in adultery. It's not legal for you. We don't know if he pointed to Herodias. It's not legal for you to be married to your brother's wife. And it says, Herod Agrippa, at this point, his conscience is still alive. And it says he puts him in prison, Marcaris, to, to, to be safe from Herodias there. And he brings him at times to listen to him. He hears him gladly, but Herodias wants him dead. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So she is, you know, this is a gal who left her 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 first husband to go with her husband's brother, who is her uncle. You know, I mean, this is some family. And uh, she wants him dead. She wants him dead. So on his birthday, Herod Antipas, big bash, everybody's dancing. And so they've excavated the place there where there were the two big halls and the dungeon and so forth. Um, they're carrying on. He's, they're all pickled. They're all drunk. And then Herodias sends her daughter to do this salacious dance. She's a fairly young girl, no doubt sexually provocative at her mother's request, and goes out and does this dance before Herod, her stepfather, maybe, and, uh, and all of his cronies. And when she's done dancing, they all go into such applause. They're all so thankful that then Herod has to look magnanimous. So he brings her out and says, I'll give you whatever you want. That dance was off the charts. You just asked me. I'll give you anything. I'll give you half of my kingdom. You know, some of them had a chooser was probably saying, no, no. You know, but she goes to her mom and says, Mom, you, see, you know, he's pickled. He's offering me whatever I want. What should I ask for? She said, ask him for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So she goes back and she asks them. And this king, this fox, is exceeding sorrowful. And yet, he does not yield to his conscience. He yields to his pride for his oath's sake. And he sends and takes the head of John the Baptist and brings it back to the party. So now when he hears about Jesus, he's having his nightmares. He's saying, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead and so forth. And now he's gotten more information evidently from Shusa's wife. No, this is not John the Baptist. This is not one of the prophets. This is not Jeremiah. This is not Elijah. This is Jesus. And he's heard of him for a long time, you know, at this point as we look at it. And then it tells us when Pilate hears that he's under the jurisdiction, back to Luke 23, he's under the jurisdiction of Herod. It says, as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him, sent him up to trial under Herod, 
who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time, because Pilate wanted to get him off of his hands. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he had heard many things about him. And he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. So Herod, you know, is feeling, he comes into my court under my jurisdiction and does a miracle here. Everybody's going to be impressed. This is going to be an honor to me. You know, he doesn't want to hear what he has to say. All he wants to do is have the side show because kings would have jugglers and clowns and entertainers in their court all the time. And all he wants is the sideshow. He doesn't want to hear anything. And it says, then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. So here is Jesus and the fox face to face. And Jesus doesn't talk to him at all. He's silent before Herod. It's an interesting picture because he had come from Pilate. He had talked to Pilate. There was a dialogue that went back and forth. It will continue when he goes back to Pilate. And, and Pilate was not his friend. Neither was Herod. But Pilate, his conscience was alive. And when he looked in the face of Jesus that was beaten and brutalized, covered with spit, he looked at him. There was a majesty. There was something there. Pilate knew he wasn't guilty that he was innocent and was dealing with that internally. And when he said things to Jesus, it wasn't as a fox. It wasn't with the same, just give me a sideshow that Herod had. Pilate was a, a Roman procurator. He was really asking out of the context of responsibility. He was asking Jesus questions. But here is Herod. Evidently, conscience is dead. It had begun to be seared with John the Baptist and his death. He had chosen his pride and his reputation over his conscience, though he was exceeding sorry. And by this time, the light that he had had been turned to darkness. And it's so interesting to look at our Savior and our Lord and to think, what circumstance is it Lord, that you're in when you're silent before someone, when you're silent. You know, conscience, which was alive in Pilate, conscience is something that warns us. We kind of all have that internal compass. It instructs us. It guides us. When people reject their conscience, it judges them. Now, you and I wonderfully Besides that internal broken compass, our conscience, we have his spirit. We have his word. We're functioning completely different. The unbeliever in this world still has a conscience. You wouldn't think of it watching the news, but it's true. Because they wouldn't then always be trying to justify themselves if they didn't have a conscience. And that conscience can play so many times with the truth about Jesus that it finally becomes hard. The life of an unbeliever, this is terrifying to me. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you know, you're here. Why are you here? What's your conscience saying to you? We want to give you an opportunity at the end of the service to, to come to Jesus. Is he speaking to you? Because the more you harden your heart, the more light turns to darkness. And it's not for me to say, but does there come a point when the Lord goes silent? He had said in the book of Proverbs, you know, answer not a fool according to his folly. And he's standing there silent. Cast not that which is holy before dogs. He had told the disciples, when you stand in front of rulers and governors and people in authority, don't 
worry about what you're going to say because in that same hour, the Holy Spirit will give you what you should say. And here is the most spirit-filled man that has ever lived standing in front of Herod and saying nothing because the Holy Spirit is not giving him to say a single word because the Holy Spirit knows what's taken place, what's happened. You see, you and I are told never to speak evil of dignitaries in Jude. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, we should pray for those in authority. And Nero was Caesar when he said that, persecuting the Christians and that, that those who are in authority and government and so forth around us were not supposed to say bad stuff about them. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? And the media we're exposed to, that's all they do. They pick the side they want and they, they just castigate everyone else. And that's our culture. And Jesus, you know, we watch him before Herod and he calls him a fox. And then his word tells us we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't accuse anybody. Now with Jesus, understand, it was not an accusation. It was a statement of fact. It wasn't like he was saying this guy might be a fox. It was a fact. Whenever we have those questions, you know, my son always says the servant does as he's commanded and the master does as he pleases. You know, and here the Lord this is not a false accusation, calls this man a fox. And now he stands in front of him silent, evidently because he knows his conscience at this point is seared. I mean, you have John the Baptist in your house, in your dungeon, speaking to you. You're hearing him gladly. There's something in your conscience saying this is true. And still you're willing to push your conscience aside to, to do that which is so evil. If you are not a believer today and you are pushing your conscience aside, don't do that. Remarkably, if, you, if your conscience is still alive today, it's because God still wants to talk to you. And understand, it isn't, you know, I've been too bad because he sits with tax gatherers and sinners and prostitutes and talks to them. And they come to believe. You know, the guy on the cross next to Jesus didn't know the sinner's prayer. He didn't know the four spiritual laws. All he did was look over and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus knew what his heart was saying. Today you'll be with me in paradise. His conscience looked over and he knew it was wrong what was happening. And if your conscience is bothering you today, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you haven't done anything too bad to be accepted by Jesus because your conscience is still alive. Look, for a Christian, we have God's written word. We have the Holy Spirit. And our conscience is still there. And I would say this to you as a believer, as a brother or sister. If you're doing certain things in your life and your conscience is bothering you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about that, if every time you flip the word open, it's addressing your issue, praise the Lord. Because he's silent here before Herod. But my Savior talks to me. He's never silent. In the morning with my Bible and a cup of coffee, in traffic, where I don't want to listen sometimes, through the day when I lay in the quiet at night before I fall asleep, he speaks to me. He speaks to me. He refuses to speak here. And if I'm ever in a situation where I feel like, Lord, I don't feel your presence. I don't feel like you're talking. I know where he is. He's right next to me, not wanting me to feel his presence. Because he says he'd never leave us or forsake us. And there are times when he wants me just to walk in faith. But the wonder of it is that he speaks to me and he speaks to you. 
He uses primarily his word and his spirit, but our conscience as well. Paul says that he administered in all good conscience. For Study the word conscience through the New Testament. That Jesus, when he addresses the Pharisees that wanted to stone the woman taken in adultery, it says he was without sin, cast the first stone. And it says they all began to drop their stones as their conscience bothered them. If your conscience is bothering you today, praise the Lord. Paul talks about for you and I, for the believer, an evil conscience that would condemn us and not be in agreement with the grace of God and his forgiveness accuses us. But Paul says, I want to preach and live in all good conscience. We're supposed to do that. And as a Christian, with the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, we should be, you know, the way we live, our conscience should have nothing to say. Should have nothing to say. But for the unbeliever, this is This is one of the most staggering scenes in the ministry of Christ when he stands there in front of Herod and he remains silent. He will not answer him because this fox, this animal of prey who lived off the lives of others has so often violated his conscience that at this point, It is silenced. The light that he had has turned to darkness. And if you've not come to Christ and he's calling you today, do it while you can still hear your conscience. Do it while you can still hear your conscience. Jesus said that my spirit shall not always strive with man in Genesis 6. If he's striving with you today and your conscience knows that, you need to yield. Because he said his coming would be as in the days of Noah, as in the days of Lot. And the world that we're looking at today when we watch the news, we see around us, is a world where consciences have been seared so much of the time, too much of the time. But his spirit strives with us wonderfully and speaks to us. That world out there, his spirit will only strive to a point. These are the days of Noah come again. And you look at what's happening and think people must have no conscience to do this to children to let this be happening, to desire it. They have no living thing inside of them that any longer says this is right and this is wrong. And how long does God wait before he comes? He speaks to me about his grace that saved me, about his grace that keeps me, about his grace that lets me look forward to his coming for me, about the blessed hope that I have, about that holy city, Jerusalem, where he's going to prepare a place for me. He speaks to me. He speaks to me about my wife. He speaks to me about my kids and my grandkids. He speaks to me about the people I work with and the people I live around. He speaks to me about my attitude. He speaks to me about the things that I desire internally that I shouldn't be desiring. He speaks to me. He's silent here. He speaks to me. He loves you. He speaks to you. He's slowly conforming you into his own image and likeness. You ain't there yet. But he speaks and he continues to speak. And he's not silent to us. This is a a record the Holy Spirit wanted to put to the page so we would have it. And have the question, when does Jesus go silent? When does he shut it down? When does he turn it off? which I do not believe he does with a believer, but with an unbeliever. And it says he answered him nothing at all. And the chief priests then and the scribes which followed him over from Pilate to Herod stood and vehemently accused, present 
perfect tense, they continued accusing him like they had before. And Herod with his men of war, now the Greek is his soldiers or his guards, Herod would never bring men of war into the jurisdiction of a Roman procurator. It says, and Herod with his his guard, his soldiers, set him at naught, puts Jesus, considers him as nothing, set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again, same word, sent him up to Pilate for trial again. He repays the honor. He realizes Pilate has recognized me as having jurisdiction in Galilee. I'm now going to recognize him as having jurisdiction here. But it says they take Jesus and they mock him. He has his soldiers mocking him. And then it says that he cloaks him, clothes him in a gorgeous robe, lampos in the Greek, which it's, it's light. It is a robe that's used enough of it when it describes the raiment of angels in the Gospels. They, it was bright like that. It speaks of it in one of the Gospels, Mount of Transfiguration, Christ's, you know, his appearance was bright, lampos. It says that Herod Agrippa the first, after he had killed James and, and wanted to kill Peter, he's standing in Caesarea in the amphitheater there, and he's addressing a crowd, and it says he was robed with this brilliant, same word, robe, it was bright. The idea is the Jewish culture would use a white robe, and they would weave in it thread of silver, and when the sun was on it sometimes, you were glistening, you were shining. They said the presence of Herod Agrippa was so overwhelming, the people said, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of a god. And then he fell down and worms ate him up. They were wrong. Uh, you know, but here they put Jesus, they mock him, and then they put him in a royal Hebrew Jewish robe the robe of the king of the Jews. And he sends him back to Pilate, mocked. All right, I'll send the king of the Jews back to you. And it says that day there was healed between these two men a problem that they had of animosity between them. And we're not sure what that was. Was Herod Antipas angry because Pilate had jurisdiction over part of the territory that was his father's? Possibly. Many feel that it was when Pilate came into the area and in this place Herod stay in the Herodian palace, put these golden shields that presented the deity of Caesar and the Jews were in these huge uproars and four of the Herods went to Caesar and asked him to stop it. And Caesar, at their behest, Antipas was one of them, commanded Pilate to take those shields out of there. So maybe that's what caused the animosity. Whatever it was, on this day, someone who didn't know what to do with Jesus was courteous to someone else who didn't know what to do with the Jesus. And then that person who didn't know what the Jesus sent him back to the first person who didn't know what to do with Jesus. And you'll find there's a lot of animosity in this world amongst people who don't know what to do with Jesus. And they just send him back and forth. But the wonderful thing is he's still speaking to some. He will speak to Pilate again. Pilate's conscience was alive. He knew the man was innocent. He would finally turn on his own conscience, but he was alive. Herod had no conscience at all. No, no conscience. He had stopped listening a long time ago. And Jesus knew that, and he knew there was no sense in speaking. Remarkable. He's mocked, and he's sent back to Pilate. So we go through the text. We meet Herod Antipas. He's mentioned again in Acts chapter 4, when the disciples are... Um, persecuted, and then they come back rejoicing that they could be persecuted for Christ. It says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, they're praying, whom thou hast anointed, whom both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles 
and the people of Israel were gathered together against whom. So he's mentioned there in Acts chapter 4, that's the last we hear of him in the context of those who were against Christ. Um, if you're watching the news, I try not to, but I'm addicted. The world's unraveling. And people who have a living conscience over and over again are violating that conscience. They're quieting it. They're telling it not to speak. They're turning away from it. And Jesus said that God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how God feels towards this crazy, dark, hopeless world that drives us out of our minds. He so loves it that he sent his son. And the multitude of lost human beings, there are those who every day are grieving the spirit and quieting their conscience. And at some point, not for me to say, Jesus stands in front of them silent. He stops. My spirit shall not always strive with man. And if you're here today, you're an unbeliever, you don't know Christ personally, we're going to sing a last song. What we're going to ask you to do is if you want to be saved today, you're, you're ready to say, all right, Lord, I hear your voice internally. I'm ready. Then we want you to get out of your seat and come down and stand here so we can pray with you and give you a Bible, some literature to read. We'd love to see you saved. And, and the Lord adds to the church daily such as should be saved. It's not anything I'm saying that's going to do this. It's while we're worshiping, while we're standing, you listen to your own heart. And if he's speaking to you, it's because he loves you. If you ignore him, when will the day come when he becomes silent? If he's speaking to you today, how remarkable. What a demonstration of his love. And for you and I as sons and daughters, it's amazing that we get with him and he speaks to us. He's ever silent. Our Savior, our Lord, Jehovah God, the Word become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He speaks to us. He speaks to us. Let's stand. Let's pray together. And if you know you need to be saved today, you come. If a friend brought you, they're going to say, come on, I'll go down with you. It may even be a friend that's been witnessing to you and you'll be ignoring the voice of the Lord through them. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know you've overheard. And again, Lord, you add to the church daily such as should be saved. Lord, we rejoice to see it, but this is your work, Lord. You know those here, Lord, um, that are believers, sons and daughters that you've been speaking to that are unyielding. Lord, give us the grace, Lord, to acknowledge your lordship in our lives. And Lord, we particularly lift those to you here who have never come, whose conscience is still alive, who can still hear your voice today saying you need to be saved, you need to come, you need to go forward, whatever it might be. We pray for them, Lord, that they wouldn't push away again, Lord, that they wouldn't ignore your voice again. Somehow they would realize your love. And today, Lord, their eternal destiny would be changed from darkness to light, from hell to heaven. They would yield to your loving voice and to their conscience. You, you only can do that, Lord. We look to you. Receive our praise. Now we pray in your name. Amen. Let's worship. And as we do, again, I encourage you, if you want to be saved, you come today. Stand here. We want to pray with you. Give you a Bible, some literature to read. Giving you my heart and all that is within. I lay it all down for the sake of you, my King. Giving you my dreams. I'm laying down my rights. I'm giving up my pride for the promise of new.
I'm going to ask again, and please listen to your heart. If you know he's speaking to you, don't harden your heart because he knows the point when that hardening will never reverse. If he's speaking to you today, he knows that you can hear his voice and receive his love and his forgiveness. The Bible warns us that our hearts can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Whatever might separate from God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. You, you can never think, I've been such a great sinner. He doesn't want anything to do with me. No, he came and he died in your place so that you can be forgiven and you can have life. But it doesn't matter what I'm saying. Let's sing through several more times. If you're willing to surrender today to his love and to his forgiveness, you come. Yeah, you're going to do it right in front of everybody. Is that embarrassing? No, it's embarrassing to be God in human flesh and hang naked on a cross. That's embarrassing. And he did it for us. Let's sing. Let's surrender. If you've never surrendered, you come today. Please, please do not defy your conscience or the drawing of the Holy Spirit while you still hear his voice before there's silence. Listen inside. He loves you. You come. would do me a favor gather kind of in here I'm going to ask you to pray a simple prayer with me um, 
You don't have to pray it out loud, but you have to pray it in your heart. And I know you don't want anything phony with God. You don't want anything phony either. He loves you so much that he gave his only son, unimaginable, that sacrifice for you. So if you would, just pray this, and then afterwards let somebody get to you, give you a Bible. We don't want your address or your email. or We don't want any of that stuff from you. We want for you, not from you. But let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I come to you today, Lord. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need forgiveness. And I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. Lord, I'm, I'm running on fumes. I'm empty here. And today I'm hearing of your love and that you love me. And I have no idea why you would ever do that. But Lord, in faith, I'm, I'm reaching out today. Today I hear you. You died on a cross in my place and rose again. And I have no idea why you would do that for me, Lord. But I'm embracing that by faith today. So, Lord, cleanse me. Renew me, Lord. Give me a new beginning, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Make me your child. Be my personal Lord, my personal Savior, my Father, my friend, my King, my God. And I give you, Lord, my life. I can hardly believe that you want it, but I give you my life, Lord. Let me walk with you every day, Lord Jesus. Teach me to love your word. And Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Lord, thank you for heaven. Thank you for life beyond the grave. Lord Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Stay right here. How are you?